anything that we can do to try to make the lives of, of these people who have been affected by trauma, because that's the root issue of all addiction, is, is somewhere along the lines there's some trauma, there's some neglect, there's something really shitty that's happened in this person's life. And the, the last thing we need to do is somebody who's already having a hard time is start throwing them in jail because the substance that they're accessing turns them into a criminal. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. The voice you just heard belongs to Saskatoon Police Constable Matt Engruel. He is the feature guest in episode two of season two of YXE Underground. Saskatoon is in the midst of a drug crisis. That statement comes from our mayor, Charlie Clark, who recently went on a ride along with the Saskatoon police and saw firsthand the impact crystal meth and opioids are having in our community. Matt Engruel has been seeing serious drug and addiction issues in Saskatoon's core neighbourhood for years, especially in regards to crystal meth. And he knows things won't improve if we, as a society, continue to view drugs and addictions in the same way we have for decades. That's why Matt is bringing about change through his podcast and non-profit organization, Say No, K-N-O-W. Get ready for a frank and honest discussion about what's happening in our community when it comes to drugs and addictions and what we can do to improve the situation. I am standing at the corner of 20th Street and Avenue D here in Saskatoon's Riversdale neighborhood, which is one of our city's core neighborhoods. There are so many exciting and innovative things happening throughout Saskatoon's core neighborhoods, but as I learned from walking throughout Riversdale with Matt, there are challenges when it comes to drugs and addictions. Matt has been a constable for the past 13 years with the Saskatoon Police Service. He's currently working with the Guns and Gangs Unit. Matt is also the founder of the Say No nonprofit organization. It is a drug education project that is doing incredible work raising drug and addiction awareness in Saskatoon. The Say No website states its mission as, quote, to tackle the illicit drug trade through education. For far too long, our society has been fighting the wrong end of the war. It's time to reduce the demand of drugs rather than focusing wasted efforts on the supply. Matt is also the host of the Say No podcast, which is how I was first introduced to him. Now, the first time I met Matt in person was when we did our walk and talk interview. And as, as soon as I saw him, I was, I was kind of a bit intimidated. I'll tell you why. If you were casting a movie, say in Brooklyn, New York, and were looking for a cool-looking, street-wise detective, you would cast Matt Engruel. He's tall, lean, with a thick shock of jet black hair with a few streaks of grey. Both forearms are covered in tattoos, and when Matt is making a point that's close to his heart, he makes intense eye contact with you. And you will hear this firsthand later in the podcast. Matt is also incredibly smart and caring passionate about changing the way our society views and treats drug and addiction issues and one of the most empathetic people I have ever met. We met on a hot July afternoon at the White Buffalo Youth Lodge and started walking east down 20th Street. We covered a lot of topics during our walk that focused on what is currently happening in Saskatoon when it comes to drugs and addictions. For example, when I asked Matt about how he would describe Saskatoon's drug scene right now, Oh, that's a that's a very loaded question and hard to answer because um, addiction issues are are really multifaceted. Um, you know, it, it 
it plays on so many different levels. I mean, every everybody you ask is in arm, arm's length of somebody who at some point in their life has struggled with an addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's, you know, an illicit drug um, and, and everything in between. So there, there's there's that aspect of just maybe the, the biological or the environmental conditions that lead to an addiction. But then we also have kind of the economy that plays a really big factor. Um, particularly on what substance um, the most disenfranchised members of our community end up becoming addicted to. So, you know, right now I would say we have uh, a meth crisis going on in, in Saskatoon. And um, it's, it's right across the country they're dealing with the same issues. You know, we hear lots about opiates and there are definite um, opiate um, issues. I wouldn't say we've necessarily hit the crisis point in Saskatoon. Others would disagree for sure. Um, but really, you look at the street price of meth, it used to be 20 or $30 a point, which is a tenth of a gram, and now you can get it on the street for as cheap as five or 10. So when it comes to you know, our most disenfranchised population who's dealing with trauma every day, they're dealing with you know, intergenerational trauma, if they're residential school survivors or the children of residential survivors, um, the substances that any of those individuals have become addicted to, it's just what's out there, what's cheap, what's available, and unfortunately it's meth, and we all know the chaos that meth typically has within a community. You heard in that clip Matt break down the price of meth and how it's decreased in recent years. I followed up by asking how cheaper meth is impacting Saskatoon. Well, more people are using it. Um, you know, and our, our informants and people on the street tell us what those prices are. But it's a, you know, the basic drug economy or the or the, uh, the illicit drug economy works no different than any other con economy. It's a, it's a supply and a demand issue. Um, if there's an abundance of the substance that they're able to pump out for super cheap, uh, then that's, that's typically, unfortunately, what the community has access to and, and what they become addicted to. And that is one of the reasons why with Say No, we're big advocates for drug regulation versus criminalization. We're, we're uh, in support of, of uh, harm reduction initiatives through education, through um, safe consumption sites, through uh, anything that we can do to try to make the lives of, of these people who have been affected by trauma, because that's the root issue of all addiction, is, is somewhere along the lines there's some trauma, there's some neglect, there's something really shitty that's happened in this person's life. And the, the last thing we need to do is somebody who's already having a hard time is start throwing them in jail because the substance that they're accessing turns them into a criminal. It's clear that there is a meth crisis in Saskatoon, so then how do we go about addressing it? A great first step, in Matt's opinion, would be more creative and innovative drug policies. In this next part of our interview, which runs about six minutes, Matt describes with great clarity why arresting our way out of this problem simply will not work. Yeah, look, when I, when I worked in the organized crime section um, for five years there and we were integrated with the RCMP, we never spent any time in any core neighborhood like very rarely because we're, we're targeting, you know, the traffickers, the people that are importing the substances. Um, now when I'm, when I'm uh, working in the Guns and Gangs unit, for example, you know, a lot of my work really is in the core neighborhood and that's where we need to um, provide a lot of that support and try to reduce some of the harms, try to understand what's happening in the communities. Um, you know, Chief Clive Wayhill is, is definitely a mentor of mine. And, uh, you know, I've heard him say many times that this isn't a problem that we can arrest our, our way out of. You know, these are, these are social issues, um, socioeconomic issues. We have to start asking some really difficult questions, coming up with some creative solutions. And really, we can't make it any worse. So let's get creative and let's just try some things. 
when you're when you're speaking then with your colleagues and they're asking you these questions and and you you share the research and you come up with these kind of creative creative ideas is like are they open to the ideas yeah i think i think yeah. most are i think most are or at least or at least they at least it planted a seed that you know might be watered every once in a while when they're at a call or they're talking to people i always encourage um you know younger officers and and uh but really any police officer to to make sure they're talking with the individuals in the community that they're policing whether it means like you know to me it's it's informant handling where we should be an intelligence-led police agency meaning that we all of the decisions and the tactics that we employ are intelligence-led if we're going to execute a search warrant for stolen property at this house we want to be sure that the stolen property is in there when we get there how do we do that that's by talking to people and when you start talking to people and you form these relationships with them you learn about their lives and you learn about you start seeing common threads like I I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough and it's a passion of mine to, to handle informants. So I've talked to probably thousands of informants throughout my career and I start seeing these common traits. And a lot of those common traits, especially if the individual is a drug user themselves, there's a lot of the, I shouldn't say drug user, someone who's, who's actually like severely, has a severe addiction issue. Um, you start seeing these things that happen in their life where their families were, were separated at a young age, they bounce around foster homes, they, uh, they've experienced abuse, um, you know, sexual abuse among in intravenous drug users as a, as a reason for them first starting is astronomical. Like it's almost four out of every five IV drug users at some point in their life has been sexually abused. These, I, I'm just thinking as you as you're telling me all this, like it, this, so much of this seems like common sense, and yet, what, why, why aren't we, I guess, implementing more of these? Do you think? I think a big, I think a big part of the issue is, is, you know, you look around social media and everything. Now we're finally starting to see um, some of this, these broader concepts that were maybe held on by some special interest groups or people working in the core neighborhoods. Like, you know, if you were to talk to, you know, Jason Mercury of Aid Saskatoon, for example, this is so common sense to him that it's laughable. Like, why are we even still talking about, you know, what the root causes of addiction are? Because they're seeing it every day on the street and the great work that they're doing. Um, so the difference is now is it's finally starting to leak out. People are, are finally open to to exploring new ideas and new concepts. You know, we, we regulated cannabis in, in uh, Canada and there was many people that were thinking, oh, like, you know, all oh, hell's gonna break loose. What happened? Nothing. Absolutely nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Except we generated some t nice tax revenue. You, you made such intense eye contact with me right there. <laughs> <laughs> Through my sunglasses, I laser beamed right to you. <laughs> But you're right, though. Yeah, the, the world didn't end, did it? No, it, it didn't end, and I think that's a great start. Sadly, uh, sadly, I haven't seen much, um, you know, much from any of the political leaders willing to say, like, okay, we started with cannabis. You know, it's still early on, but, you know, this could be the future. And the big thing about drug regulation that people also need to understand is when you, when you hear crazy people like myself and, and my friends and everything talk about drug regulation, we don't mean that everything is going to be sold like cannabis at the, at the convenience store. What we mean is we need to have, like Health Canada just a couple months ago, made injectable um, hydromorphone or morphine, and aka heroin would be the equivalent opiate, um, prescribable by a doctor to, um, 
to intravenous drug users. So now doctors actually have the ability to prescribe, you know, an injectable drug, <laughs> excuse me, for those people to use. That is a huge step in the right direction because as soon as we can take a drug user's foot out of the criminal enterprise, then that's a win for everybody, especially the community. People are always thinking, you know, on the on the liberal tree hugger side, which which a lot of cops think that I am, which I'm, I'm actually not. I'm more of an economist. And, but so a lot of them think like it's all about loving and hugging the individual and reducing the individual's harm. Well, yeah, it is. But really, it's about reducing the harm to the entire community, to the entire tax base. And by providing these supports to um, allow somebody to not have to go and get their substance from the back alley just over here, they're able to go to the doctor and get it, then all of a sudden, it's cheaper, we pay less tax, that person's not having to commit crimes in order to obtain it, my garage isn't getting broken into, your car's not getting rummaged through, and we're all living a happy life and paying less tax for it. You are listening to episode two of season two of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. Matt Ingruel from the Saskatoon Police Service and Say No Organization is our guest today. You can subscribe to YXE Underground on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. You can also stream episodes on Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and the website yxeunderground.com. If you want to see pictures of Matt, follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So there is a lot to digest in the first part of my conversation with Matt. He paints a very clear picture of where things are right now, and I sure appreciate him giving me a lay of the land when I met him here in Riversdale. But what I was really interested in was figuring out why a very busy police officer wanted to start a nonprofit organization focusing on drug education. Why did Matt start Say No? That question led us down many paths, and I'm so grateful for Matt for opening up the way that he did, because as you're about to hear, Say No is extremely um, personal to him. <laughs> the idea came from being a part of some of the most horrendous drug education programs, you know, uh, put out by, you know, the police services. And uh, as much, obviously, I'm not bashing police services. They're doing the best they can. But, but when it comes to um, really understanding, it's one lens, you know, the police have one lens. And a lot of these education tactics were kind of very, were rooted in old school principles of, you know, the, the scaring them straight or, or the uh, kind of glorifying um, how bad you know the area can be and that just increases the stigma it just increases it also it also uh, undervalues how smart teenagers are and youth are and if we just give them like I, every presentation we, we, we do I say I'm not here to tell you what to do because I don't know you to be honest I could care less what I'm here to do is give you the information you do with it what you want and I think by just Going with that approach, here's the information, it's raw, it's real. Here's a story from somebody who's had a life um, gone absolutely awry because of this situation. But then here's somebody like myself, who, you know, can drink beer on the weekends, can smoke a joint on the weekends, and it's not causing any issues in my life just because of the upbringing I've had was very positive. Whereas that might not be an option for you if you've, you know, had some pre-genetic disposition to an addiction or you've experienced trauma yourself and you're starting to see these substances play a bigger role than they should. I wanted to ask you where you where you find the people that appear on your podcast and 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 the range is really impressive in terms of you you have experts 
um, from all over North America, and then you have people who um, are here in our community who have been battling addictions for years. How how do you find the people? Well, they're phenomenal. I mean, they're they're everybody by nature is good-hearted, um, and you know when it comes to you know the only difference is life experience, really. And and if you've had you know, I often say to, you know, say to some of my informants, you know, if there's no judgment here, like if I was born into your shoes, I would probably end up much worse than you because I don't know if I have the resilience you have. If you were born into my shoes, you'd probably be doing what I'm doing now. Like there's, we don't get to choose, you know, where we were born. We don't get to choose any of that. So why are we acting like we did get that choice? So with the, these phenomenal people that you interview, like I, I, maybe this is just podcast host geek wanting to know, but like where, where, how do you go about getting them on to your show and then having them open up about their experiences? Oh, you know, Eric, it's been one hell of a journey. I am not the same person from a year ago today from, from my podcast at all. I, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people on the street, um, obviously throughout my career and and through say no and stuff and develop friends that are in the, you know, in all kinds of different walks of life. But when I started doing the podcasts um, and when I got connected with people, a lot of them I would meet at a conference or I'd meet through a friend or someone would refer them to me. And uh, it was like, I've had three people on my podcast disclose for the first time ever that they were sexually abused as a child. And like the amount of times that I've had tears in my eyes while we're, while I'm interviewing this person over the phone or in person, and it's just like they've been waiting to share this information. This they've been waiting to for somebody to say like I get it. There's no judgment here. There's no stigma here. I understand why your life went this way. And as soon as they they see that you know you're there as a person, you're there as a friend, you're there as someone to listen. And not only that, you think that their information is so valuable that I want to force feed it into politicians' faces so that they can understand and make decisions that are going to impact the community in a better way. The, the first time that someone shared that type of information with you, how, do you remember how you reacted? Well, the, the first time, it was kind of a, it was kind of like a dripping tap, whereas like, you know, on the street handling, handling informants or just even just talking to people in the community and every once in a while, you know, a story would pop up of, you know, some childhood abuse or trauma or neglect, something like that. Um, and then... And then I started educating myself, and it helps having a wife as a social worker. And uh, we also have a son who's who's a trauma survivor. And he, uh, learning, seeing his path and seeing the parenting strategies that are exhausting and difficult that we've had to implement to kind of help reformulate his brain from where it was going, um, show and to, to see how much work and and quite frankly, you know, we could have done a lot better in in many ways. Um, as most parents would probably say, but seeing the seeing what it actually takes to try to unravel some of that trauma is is an insane amount of work, and no one can do it alone. But yet everyone here is almost forced to do it alone. Not only that, while they are trying to heal from their trauma, we're throwing them in jail. We're uh, you know we're we're separating families, we're, we're doing all of these things that we think in the immediate is helping, the, is helping society, but really in the long term, it's just like throwing fuel on the fire. I, I hope this isn't too personal of a question, but 
the, you, you mentioned your, your wife and, and then your son as well. The, your situation with your family, has that provided like motivation or, or fuel for this Say No project and, and with the podcast? It, it's definitely given me um, it's definitely given me a perspective that I don't think could ever uh, could ever be um, obtained from anywhere else. Um, I, now I can I can actually say you know I myself have lived experience when it comes to managing trauma, when it comes to managing addiction, suicide, when it comes to all of these different things. I can say that you know I have that lived experience now, and I don't think there is any education available that is better than lived experience and so that's why you know we started to say no it was to share these stories of people with lived experience to whoever's willing to listen you know we're, we're often in, at the university lecturing to students and professors we're often you know uh, we got some funding by the canadian research initiative of substance misuse um, they're a phenomenal organization who's just trying to get typically academic research in the hands um, and in a shareable way across the country and we're able to come in and, and provide a little bit of that lived experience and, and uh, they're actively seeking other organizations that have lived experience to come on board and I think it's making at least the academia side so far it seems like they understand the direction that we need to go um, but it hasn't reached necessarily the public or the politician side yet. I, I want to get to the politicians in a minute, but you, you you said something really interesting there in terms of you 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 have that experience now of, of going through um, the the trauma and you understand it better. Do you think that makes you a, a better host, a better interviewer when you are speaking with these people? The fact that you understand in in some ways what they are going through, and and I'm sure they can pick up on that too. Yeah, um, I don't know if it makes me a better interviewer per se but I tell you what it helps me empathize with what they're going through and when you look into the eyes of another parent who who is going through a struggle you instantly by just making that eye contact you know that you understand no words need to be said um, the same thing happens with you know people that are you know struggling with an addiction or they've survived an overdose you know when you come and sit with them and and you just look them in the eye and and you just kind of I don't know, I think it's face and body language and you know, it's that whole, it's that whole, like mostly our communication's nonverbal. I think, I think there's, there's a recognition that happens with only people that have been through a similar experience together that instantly connects you. And, and I think that's kind of happened to I, some extent. I, I was curious about that part because we were, we were talking before we started recording about, I, I, what I really love about your podcast is that you, you are able to put people at ease and they're, they, they tell you so much and you've talked about that. And I think that's, that's a rare gift to find and I remember being in journalism school and, and taking interviewing classes and how you know that was kind of like the ultimate goal is to do that like it do, do you like do, do you have a little bit of journalist no. in you or no? Com completely <laughs> completely by accident and uh honestly man it's it's because the people that I'm it's because the people that we're working with just have been silenced for so long that if I could you know you know we're in one of Saskatoon's core neighborhoods right now I could go. I could go walk you into one of ten houses that I know are are selling and using substances. I could sit. I could walk you into their living room right now, and I and I could introduce you. I could introduce myself and say, "Would you guys be willing to share your story?" And I bet 99 times out of 100, they would say yes. 
Yes, because this, this is all they have. All they have is this life experience. Everything else in their, in their life has, for a lot of people, has been a struggle. It's been chaos. It's, they don't understand why this is happening to them. They want to connect, they want to talk. And then, so you have all these amazing community groups that are out there that are bringing these people together. And, you know, when, when we look at the biggest changes that have happened socially um, when it comes to drug policy and drug use, um, a lot of it is from these user groups coming together, realizing they have a connection and a voice, and then using that voice to make positive change. And so, Right now in Saskatoon, we don't have a user group necessarily that's been able to really push everyone together and use that voice, probably because we're still struggling so much. But I'd like to see us get there. Um, I, I think you, you've you done a, a, a wonderful job ex explaining in terms of you know your motivation for doing this and how um, how it all comes together. And I, and I think it's amazing that you, on your own time, have have received funding from different organizations and stuff like that so you're doing all this good work but then like you said now it's you've got to convince the politicians to actually make some change so how how do you go about doing that well just keep pushing the information out there and and i think it's definitely a bottom-up approach you know it's uh i used to i used to uh knock on uh, gord wyatt's door all the time and if he listens to this podcast he'll probably laugh but you know i'd send him emails and stuff and i was thinking like you know it was uh I thought it was a top-down approach, but really what I've learned is uh, along these last few years, last year in particular, is that really the change needs to come from the bottom up. And as we become more accepting as a society, which I think is, is happening at least with some substances like cannabis, um, the, more, the more we become accepting as a community, um, the more we're willing to reduce that stigma and, and stand up and put your hand up and say, hey, I've, I've struggled with mental health issue. You know, I, I went to a call and you know, I had to give I had to give an infant um, CPR, and the infant didn't live. And when I went home to my kids that night, that was a fucking hard night. And and you know, I've had recurring dreams from it. And would I say I have PTSD from that moment? Absolutely. I've been there. I've, I've had it. I've been able to healthily you know healthily work through it. But the only reason, the only way I was able to work through it is because other cops called me right away and said, Hey, we've been through that. We've been through that. Everyone's putting their hand up and saying, I've been through a struggle. I've had an addiction issue, I've had a mental health issue, I'm currently battling, I'm currently struggling. Okay, well if we're all doing that, then why are we criminalizing, you know, one mental health group over another? Why are we, you know, it, it just it just blows my mind that we would, this day and age in 2019, that we would say, um, if you're addicted to alcohol, that's socially acceptable. If you're addicted to sex, if you're addicted to gambling, even though you're going to throw your entire family's welfare down the toilet, that's acceptable, like legal from a legal perspective. But man, if you're gonna if you're gonna use an opiate because you've been through trauma to manage your pain at night and help you sleep, why? Like, what are we doing? So we, you know, we need to we need to get there. And you know, I used to be fairly subtle and and uh, and a little bit guarded and in my you know sharing sharing what I've learned. But it's to the point now where you know it's. I'm an open book and I've learned it. I'm not going to unlearn it. And I hope everyone else can kind of get to these points as well. Are you optimistic about the future? I am. I'm very optimistic. Um, I am. I mean, there's, there's days that I'm not because it's not going fast enough. And, I'm, and I see firsthand every day. I mean, we have, um, you know, I'll take a minute to talk about, you know, our gangs. That's, I work in our guns and gangs unit now. And, 
and we're having a massive issue with, with indigenous, predominantly indigenous-based gangs where their youth aged anywhere from, you know, they'll, they'll get in now as, long, as early as 11, 10, 11 years old, you know, right up until their teen years and then, um, and then a lot of their leadership is already, you know, aged out at, you know, 20, in their 20s, 30s or later. But you just see, what you see is this sort of whirlwind that occurs when um, you have a youth who is no different than my son, who have, who's been through uh, horrific living environments from the moment they were born. They are typically cognitively, you know, different than, than the, the majority of children at school. They uh, don't have the same access to um, activities, so you know they're not getting driven to hockey every night. They're not, they're not going to basketball. Their parents haven't put them in dance. Um, if they do have a parent, a lot of times it's from a broken home or the parent themselves is a trauma survivor. Um, and so then you have this youth who has nobody that looks like him other than this group over here that all of a sudden is carrying a red flag or a black flag, which is a bandana that gang members wear. And they say, come on, and they look like me, they talk like me, they're into the same thing as me. And then, uh, you know, Gordon Neufeld, the prominent uh, Canadian psychologist, says, you know, when peers replace parents, what's lost is that individual identity, and the individual identity becomes that of the groups. And so then, that's why you end up seeing these kids, and when I first got to the gang unit, I couldn't believe it, you would see these kids who are blood relatives who happen to join different gangs and then the police are getting a call that you know one stabbed the other and you're like well, what the hell their cousins are like they, they just spent christmas together last year like how is this happening well it's because their own identity and this is all on a cognitive level like this is all on brain research level their identity has been stripped away and the only thing that matters is the identity of the group which is obviously grow make money as a group you know terrorize the community sell drugs try to get some sort of power back in your life and use this horrible means of doing it. So, you know, when you start to understand that and, you know, raising my son, and I see that he is very, like, if my son wasn't living in my house, he would be in and out of jail probably with my, uh, with my colleagues arresting him all the time. And, you know, he's still probably, you know, he might every once in a while, but not to the extreme of some of these youth. He probably would have joined a gang because, he would have been attracted to that lifestyle. We would have been policing him extra heavy because he is a gang member. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I don't even know where I was going on this tangent, but it, it was, it, But yet you issue. remain optimistic. But I do remain optimistic because we're starting to see uh, the community change. And, and when I say it, it's from a bottom-up approach, I think the absolute best example is, is uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm on the board of directors of Aid Saskatoon, and we saw, um, we saw just some of the groundwork that uh, that Aid Saskatoon is doing to, to open up a safe consumption site here in Saskatoon, and and I know that we and and um, the other members and the, the executive director were expecting all kinds of blowback from the community, um, you know, saying we're coming here, and it was the opposite. It was almost like they're 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 wondering why it's taken so long, sort of thing. So it's it's I think we've gotten to a point now where the community understands um, that we need to be doing things different. They don't want to see their family members getting arrested all the time for, for issues that, you know, are, are unfortunately just chaotic nuisances of having a drug-addicted lifestyle with our current drug policy. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing police agencies across the country um, reform. And, and we're seeing, you know, we've had incredible leaders here in Saskatoon 
um, you know, Wayhill I always lead back to because he got sworn in with my class, but he was this cutting edge chief that came in and, and said we can't arrest our ways out of these problems. He, he almost shifted some of the burden because a lot of times, you know if you call 911 the police is coming. No matter what your problem is, the police will get there. It might not even be a police issue that you're dealing with, but you know for sure nobody out the firefighters might not show up if your house isn't on fire you know social services might not show up you know the the food bank might not show up but the police will and so i think he was one of the first people to say i think he was really one of the first people to say like this isn't a police issue and let's shift some of the responsibility and then he became an advocate for social housing and i think he made you know some huge contributions to the housing first program to help get you know build that up and so you're starting to see these police leaders who also recognize that, you know, why are we having to be burdened with this? Why is the criminal justice system burdened with this? Other organizations, health big time needs to step up and say, no, you know what, we're going to take the addiction umbrella. We're going to take the drug use umbrella, not the police. And I think that torch is going to be passed eventually. And in some communities, it's happening faster than others, but, I, but it is happening. I mean, drugs will be regulated within my lifetime. I'm, I'm certain of it. Yeah. I, I really admire your passion, and I and I no, I really do, and and I I love the fact that you were so willing to share so much with everything. Um, congrats on the podcast, congrats on the website, and and all the work that you do, and I, I I am a fan, and I'll keep watching. So thank you. Matt. Well, thank you, Eric, and I appreciate what you're doing. Um, when I was at when I told my wife what I was doing, and she asked about the podcast, I said, well, he's. From, he's been interviewing some of the most interesting people in the community that I've been listening to, and I feel honored that you would ask me and be willing to accept my story. So thank you very much. You're welcome. A big thank you to Matt Ingruel for not only appearing on the podcast and sharing his knowledge, but for opening up about his motivation behind Say No. If you want to know more about the organization, visit saynow.org. This has been episode two of season two of OIC Underground. I am your host, Eric Anderson. I also produce and edit this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You can also stream episodes on Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or the website, yxeunderground.com. That's where you'll find uh, all of our episodes, as well as pictures taken by YXE Underground photographer, Janelle Wallace. Janelle's amazing photos of Matt and all of our guests can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you know of someone who is making a difference like Matt is in our community and is flying under the radar, please let me know. Send me an email, ericandersonyxe at gmail.com. I want to give a shout out to my cousin Andrew, who creates all the music that you hear on the podcast, and a special thank you to the good folks at Danger Dynamite here in Saskatoon for keeping the website in tip-top shape. Next month, a brand new episode featuring two fantastic young men who are doing great work when it comes to truth and reconciliation here in Saskatoon, Bayani Trinidad and Forrest Eagle Speaker. They are awesome, and you're going to love their passion. Don't forget to leave a review of the podcast on your favorite podcast app, and thank you for sharing YXE Underground with all of your friends. Before I go, I would like to acknowledge that this interview was done on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. My name is Eric Anderson, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon. And there's a guy that's looking at me right now. Hello.
Hey, I'm just trying to say big fan. Oh. I'm the director at 8 Saskatoon. You're Jason. Yeah. Jason, look who I'm talking about. Oh. Matt and Gruel. Yeah. Do you, do you want to say anything about Matt? Uh, I just love Matt. He, he works his butt off and he's great for the community. I love that I just ran into you. Where are you coming from? Bro. Oh, that's, yeah. that's why you're all sweaty. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Jason. You too. Thank you. Have a good night. <laughs> you too.